What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 135 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I not answer your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, talk about some listener-submitted follow-up, go over the news, and then conclude our discussion from last week, a thorough exploration of learning when to shut up and knowing when to pick your battles. Part two. Can't wait, Paul. It's good. That was a good discussion last week, and, and I predict that it's going to be a good discussion this week as well, Andy. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. Now we're going off into uncharted, non-email dictated territory, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. So, Andy, we both had some fun events that we recently went to. Did you get any good food at these events? Well, Paul, I did eat an Arlo's cheeseburger at the event that I did this past weekend, which was the Vegandale Food Drink Festival in Houston. But what I really want to talk about is my recent trip to New Orleans. It's a town that I love. It's a town that's not necessarily known for its vegan options, at least back in the day. I, I spent some time there. I lived there for a short period, and the, the vegan options were pretty sparse. But they are really blowing up lately. And I came into town, and, and some friends were like, there's like all these new places for you to go to. Went to a place called Mac and Moon, which is uh, vegan macarons. And like, <laughs> you like that? I do. I loved it. <laughs> so I think that's how you're required to say it. There's a place called Dough to Dough, which is doing vegan donuts. And oh, this is like a bunch of stuff popping up, which is really exciting because it's about time for New Orleans to become a vegan mecca. Uh, but the place that I really want to highlight is called Trilly Cheesesteaks. Ooh, yeah, I'm interested. Yes, yes. So so the place is not all vegan. It's about half and half. It's just kind of a very simple setup. They have your cheesesteak. They have a buffalo cheesesteak. They have a couple of different... It's all variations on a cheesesteak. Go figure. I split one with my with my friend Mary, who runs the Nola Vegans Instagram account. You should definitely follow that if you're looking for good food in New Orleans. But we got the Far East Philly, which they marinate the the seitan, which is shaved pretty thin, in sort of this like sweet ginger soy marinade, and they put some fried onions on top, and then they use a what I'm assuming is a house made cream cheese on it, and. I have to say, honestly, it was like super salty, like even more salty than me. And I'm like, bring on the salt kind <laughs> the of guy. The salt master. The salt master. But the cream cheese that they used was honestly very outstanding. I think it's better than any one that I've had on the market. So that was cool. But yeah, it, the, the cream cheese really helped to temper the saltiness of the seitan, the marinade. But the true star of the show, Paul, mm-hmm. the, the absolute star of the show was the barbecue Philly. I'm skeptical. <laughs> Paul, I think you'd love it. The The cheese sauce they use is a very nice, very nucci cheese sauce. Okay. And then they also put some some great kind of sweet barbecue sauce on it, and it worked so well. 
deserves at least two chef kisses. <laughs> I have a funny story about this, Andy. Thank you for those chef kisses. I have a funny story about this because you posted a picture of this on the Instagram. And I haven't mentioned this to you. And it's probably still like this. I don't know if I'll have to go back and read the exact wording that you used. But you said something like, this is the best cheesesteak in Philly. Or something like that that made it seem like the place was in Philadelphia, although you did tag the place and I think you tagged the location too. So it was clearly not in Philadelphia. But on that day, I had plans to hang out with one of my friends in Philadelphia because he was visiting Philly. And I ended up, because it was Memorial Day weekend, I ended up staying in Connecticut with my family. So I had to cancel the plans. But then he messaged me later and was like, wait. Like, are you in Philadelphia right now? Because because you had posted this thing on that day that was like the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. And I was like, dang it, Andy. Well, yeah, I definitely totally worded it in a way that straight up said it was in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my partner, Andy, caught that and I, I edited it immediately. So people knew it was in New Orleans. I don't know why i put that it was in philly but <laughs> apologies to any beardos out there that were like on the hunt sleuthing around philly looking for truly cheesesteaks because it is about a thousand miles away yeah. <laughs> but yeah no that sounds good i've never been to new orleans and i hope to go sometime soon it's a really wonderful town really wonderful town paul it's one of one of my favorites in the country actually mm. and uh before i turn over the food to you paul i just want to say that at the vegandale food and drink fest i got to Meet Shanna, who won our last mailbag contest, where people can leave us an iTunes review, and we pick at random, and we'll send them a button and sticker. And Shanna was the winner of that, so that was really cool, and also got to meet Bella as well. So thank you both for coming out and saying hi. Nice. Paul? Yes, Andy? What went in that beautiful mouth of yours? So, I got I got two places to mention. One I've mentioned on more than one occasion, I think, and that is because it is a mere two blocks away from my apartment and that's triangle tavern and it's worth mentioning them again because they just added i think two new vegan menu items one of them's like a a, some sort of crab cake thing that i haven't tried yet but this other one is a cauliflower alfredo pasta dish Mm. and as soon as i saw that they had it i was like i need to get this because i'm I love me some Alfredo, Andy, and this did not disappoint. It was so good. My my only qualm is the price point. It was a little bit expensive, and it, it really doesn't come with anything in the pasta except for some snap peas, which were good. But I added – you can, like, add vegetables. I added some broccoli to it, and it was so good. If you are in Philadelphia, I would highly recommend it as long as your wallet can uh, can afford it. But – I asked them, I was like, hey, you have these seitan wings that are also delicious. They got these big chunks of seitan. I was like, can you combine those seitan wings and the Alfredo and make like a chicken Alfredo? And the guy was like, we could do that, but that would be, I would have to charge you for both of those things. And the wings are already pretty expensive on their own. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to pay $30 for this chicken Alfredo dish, but maybe one day when I, when I win the lottery, but definitely check that out if you're, if you're near the triangle tavern i thought you were dedicated to food paul 30 dollars should be nothing <laughs> and and then i was at the the lancaster veg fest yesterday and i was working there by myself didn't have a chance to go around check out the food vendors there were a lot of good food vendors there cinnamon snail was there good one is always freaking vegan um 
and others that I can't think about right now. But right before it started, I quickly headed over and got a Kung Fu Hoagie from Kung Fu Hoagies. And they got they have meatball subs, which I've had before, but I just went with the traditional banh mi this time. And it was very good. Affordable, a large, uh, affordable for such a large portion of food. It's like this giant roll. And yeah, it was very, very good there. I, I, it's funny that I traveled over. I traveled about two hours away and then got something that I could get basically any time in Philadelphia. <laughs> but you know what? I haven't had it in a while. And it was definitely, definitely still lived up to the hype for me. Very nice. And then at Lancaster Veg Fest, I also met a couple beeros, more than Andy, probably for the first time at any event ever. But I ran into Camille, Kate, Andrew, who, Andy, met you outside of Vegan Treats, uh, what, two weeks ago? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I got to meet Andrew as well. And then Megan. And Megan got me some water, which was very nice. I think more than one person got me water. I was basically, anytime someone came by and was like, hey, do you need anything? I was like, please just give me water. It was so hot. <laughs> and then also Jenny, who Andy bought a, a button pack and sticker and then left it at the table by accident. So, Jenny, I still have your button pack and sticker. And <laughs> I, I can probably mail that out to you if you, if you get in contact with us. But Je- Jenny was so in awe of your majesty, Paul. Prob- that was probably it. But it was very nice to meet all of you, and uh, I hope to run into some more Beardos soon. All right. With that said, Paul, we got uh, some really great emails. People doing work for us. Yes. And specifically the Victoria Beardos coming through and i don't mean beardos from the victorian era i mean beardos (laughs) named victoria we got two great emails from two different victorias both pertaining to follow-up this first one andy is about those chips i think was this this was last week right last week's episode you talked about those cassava chips containing the cholesterol like it was like less than five milligrams of cholesterol and you were like well, how can how can anything that's vegan have cholesterol? Well, Victoria did the like you said, Victoria did the work for us, emailed Cassava and received this email back. So we're just going to read this. They responded. Thank you for reaching out to Plant Snacks and your interest in our cassava root chips. You can rest assured that all of our chips are completely vegan. The actual cholesterol value is zero milligrams. The less than five milligram currently on the packaging is a typo or mistake when we printed this new round of packaging. We are removing it on the next packaging printing run, but need to work through the existing inventory of packaging film. The change should be on packaging near the end of summer or fall. So It's a weird typo, Paul. It is. Well, well, I guess it says less than five milligrams. So I guess that could mean zero. Could be zero. <laughs> so they're not wrong. Nice. Very but nice. That puts the cassava chips cholesterol conundrum to bed. Yeah. And those were the, the beet cassava root chips with vegan goat cheese that we were talking about. And so the other little bit of follow up we had was pertaining to that the new French law that basically says that vegan products aren't allowed to call themselves meat or aren't allowed to package themselves as chicken or beef or, or milk. And so we got another email from another Victoria who had like, a, a, I feel like a different take that to my knowledge, I don't think we, we talked about this potential response to this new law, but this is what they had to say. Regarding the French law that doesn't allow vegan products to advertise using words such as milk or chicken, I had a few thoughts based on experiences with my friends. 
One of my friends always complains that vegans use non-vegan words to title their products rather than just using a different name. I was wondering if maybe this law could be beneficial because when someone tastes something like almond beverage, they won't be disappointed by the fact that it doesn't taste like milk, but rather be happy because it tastes good and they didn't have any expectations. Hey, Andy, do you think mm-hmm. that this friend's name is Gary? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> so, I, to my knowledge, I don't think we I don't think we talked about this potential like it, our discussion was mostly like, well, this kind of stinks and it might be a setback and it might cost the products some money to repackage all their stuff, but we were kind of both of the opinion that these products will 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 survive through this and it'll be okay. But I don't think yeah. we we talked about the potential benefit of something like this because even though vegan products, there are vegan products that taste delicious. There are also vegan products that don't taste so good. But then there are also non-vegan products that taste delicious and not so good as well. But we didn't talk about the potential benefit that people wouldn't would no longer be doing this A/B comparison. That I, I, I at least I hear, and I think most most vegans hear from non-vegans, like, oh well. There's no good vegan cheese replacement, and and I would give up cheese if there was an exact vegan cheese. And I do think that there's definitely the benefit the benefit of having like a vegan chicken or a vegan cheese is you can say like, hey, you eat this thing, now you can just eat this other thing, and don't really need to change the idea of what you're eating. You just need to change from non-vegan to vegan product. So that's where it's good. But I don't know. Do you think that? this could also be something potentially beneficial, what Victoria put forward? Yeah, you know, this always feels like something that's sort of uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. It's, you know, when people are like, oh, this is a vegan hot dog, and people are like, why don't you just call it something else? And then you make up a word for it, and they're like, ooh, what's this weird word that you've made up? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'll choose to see it optimistically like Victoria here because – Ultimately, yeah, that could change people's expectations. I'm I'm wondering who will have the hardest time with this. I feel like it's the vegan cheeses. Because like we talked about in previous episodes, you could just call something a tender or a nugget and people would get the idea without, say, putting like chicken in front of it. And I mean, even like yeah, dog spelled D-A-W-G. Like they could spell hot dogs like that, I guess. I don't yeah. know if that's still too close to the thing, but... Cheese is harder because I guess you could have spread, but something that's just like a slice of cheese. Like, I don't know what they would call that. Almond brick. (laughs) Almond slice. I guess they would just call it a slice. Melty slice. (laughs) Melty slice. Sounds like that would be like my like rapper name or something. (laughs) Young melty slice. (laughs) Little melty slice. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, I think I think Victoria makes a really good point here, and I choose to think about the future optimistically. Yeah, yeah. I, I think also it depends on how the product is presented. Like with hot dogs, I don't think the, the, the shape of a hot dog is changing anytime soon, and, and people, vegan or not, people see that product and they say, oh, that is a hot dog. Like even if even if companies aren't allowed to call it a hot dog, people will look at that and know that that is a hot dog. But with something like cheeses, it comes in so many different varieties and textures and consistencies that 
you know, if if some if if a cheese is melted inside of a like inside of a product, I don't think you would need to call it cheese. You could call it some other thing. And people would be like, oh, wow, this is just tasty. And, and it doesn't matter what that thing is called. It's just, you know, it's just a, a an ingredient in the product versus being the entire product. Like a, a hot dog is the entire thing. Yeah. 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 I guess time will tell. All right, Andy. What's uh, what's this next up on the docket? I added a new thing, Paul. Oh, we got a new thing. A new thing. I'm calling this campaign announcement. Do we need a theme song for that? Just like we have theme songs for everything else? Yeah, because we definitely do have theme songs for everything else. <laughs> Finny Beardo wants to make a campaign announcement theme song or a theme song for the news specifically. We will take you up on that. Yeah, this is actually not a super new campaign. I believe it was launched in 2016, but it seems to have been getting some some new life, some fresh air into it. And I thought it would be good to highlight because I know we've had people emailing in asking us to talk about things that our listeners can actually do, not just us sitting around complaining all day, Paul. So, which, we, which we love to do. <laughs> which we love to do. We love to complain. We love to nitpick. And so this is the Shame on Safeway campaign. This is put on by our dear friends over at the Food Empowerment Project. And what this is all about is there is a grocery chain called Safeway, and I guess they're also Albertsons in certain locations. And they have a practice. And you know, I'm actually not sure if this is exclusive to them. I, I bet other grocery stores do it as well, but... A practice where if they're leaving a location, they will put restrictions on what can go into that location in the future, which means they can say no grocery stores can be here and and sometimes up to 15 years. And this is them trying to sort of not have any competition coming in, I guess, if they're just moving to not super far away. But the result of this is that if they were the only grocery store providing access to healthy food in a certain area, they leave they remove that access and they bar anyone else from coming in and being a grocery store to supply that access to people. So it prevents access to healthy food. It prevents access to vegan food as well. So I think this is something that everyone should be concerned about, but vegans especially. I think that you know a part of our work should be making sure that everyone has access to the food they need to be to eat a plant-based diet. And Safeway having this practice does not allow that to happen. So the campaign, we'll put a link to this in our show notes, but you can learn all about it just by going to foodispower.org slash Safeway, and it lists a number of things that you can do. Some of some of the easiest ones are things like just signing their petition. There's a link for that uh, in the link that we will provide, and you can call Safeway. They provide wording. They talk about how to talk to the people you reach about this issue, which is really great. And the thing that sort of has kind of brought on another round of support for this is there's sort of the selfie campaign. And, Paul, I'm sure you've seen various campaigns where people will, like, hold up a sign about a specific issue, take a selfie, a little handwritten sign kind of thing. So people have been doing that. And whatever your message, you know, something like people deserve access to healthy food or something of that nature. And then make sure you use the hashtag shame on Safeway while you do it. And I think that that's all uh, an easy way to help raise the awareness about this issue. And there are, of course, other things you can do that involve actually getting out in the street and doing protesting and leafleting, all that good stuff. And again, all the, the info will be on the link that we'll put in our show notes. That's wild. That 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 is not something that I was aware that this store or other grocery stores did. But 
real shitty. Yeah, yeah, it really sucks. Also, I, again, like I'm, I'm no lawyer. I'm no grocery store lawyer. But how is this legal? Capitalism? I don't know. I don't know, Paul. Like, like, does the whoever owns that property they have to like sign a a, a not a no compete clause when the grocery store like signs on to the lease for that property? It's really strange. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I'd imagine that's it, and I'm sure that whoever owns the property is like, sure, whatever. Someone will take this space if you decide to leave. So it doesn't have to be a grocery store, even though it's perfectly set up for a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the first thing I thought of was I was like, well, just because the grocery store can't open in that exact spot, you know, like it could open across the street or something like that. But what you just said, like grocery stores definitely, they need a specific amount of like size and, and a big parking lot. And so it definitely needs to be a, a specific plot of land for that. So that really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Shame on Safeway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. That was an exciting new installment of our, our inaugural campaign announcement section of the podcast. <laughs> All right. I guess that means it's time for the news. <laughs> news. All right. <laughs> What do we got, Paul? So this first story, I'm including it. So it's it's very hev- heavily environmental, but I'm including it because, Andy, in my search for vegan news items, this was the one that was not only the top one, but it was probably the first six or seven stories for when someone went to search for vegan. Uh, this is coming out June 1st, so that's only two days ago, so it's very current. And I'm going to read an article from Newsweek.com titled, Want to Save the Planet? Go Vegan, study says. So basically, as the as the title implies, there's a new major study that came out in what's being referred, at least by Newsweek, as the most comprehensive investigation yet into the environmental impact of food production. And basically, the, the outcome of it, the, the findings, were that even sustainably sourced meat and dairy was still more detrimental to the environment than any plant-based food. And ultimately the findings suggested that more people either need to go vegan or at least reduce the amount of these non-vegan products that they eat. Of course, just reducing your intake is not something that we would push for but like i mentioned this this article and this study is basically solely talking about the environmental impact and so i think that this is important because it could be like another another tool in our belt however i can already see some of the the common not criticisms of it but the common deflections of someone trying to use this to encourage veganism and that's specifically what this what this study found was that you only need to reduce your intake of these products by like 50% to incur a say 80% to incur 80% of the benefits from reducing it so basically what it was saying is if you cut down if you cut down your your intake by a little bit, it goes a long way rather than it being like one-to-one where it's like, if you want to eliminate 70% of your, your 
footprint, you have to eliminate 70% of your intake of these things. So I can, I can see a lot of people using this to promote reducitarianism or just promoting like, Oh, I don't need to, I don't ever need to go full vegan because I can do so much just by reducing a little bit. So I can see that being a common deflection. But what I do think is important that this study looked into that I haven't seen is they went into the difference between high impact and low impact producers. So for instance, they, they looked at the difference between beef production in a location that was high impact. So very detrimental to the environment versus low impact. So not as detrimental. And they basically found that even the low impact, for instance, cow's milk production was still using almost two times as much land as soy milk. So this is good because I think, Andy, there's been studies in the past that we've looked at that have been like, well, if you compare this specific non-vegan product to this vegan product, the vegan product is actually worse. And that might still be the case. But I think what's important that we can we can tell people from this study is that like even the low impact non-vegan products as a whole are still worse than the high impact vegan products. Yeah. Did it, do you know if it took into account like local production and packaging or any of that stuff? I'm not positive. This says a little quote from the article says the researchers looked into the land and water use greenhouse gas emissions, as well as ocean acidification and eutrophication caused by the 40 different products. They noted that there are currently more than 570 million farms producing crops across the world. I'm judging from the whole high impact, low impact thing that they go into. I feel like that's what they were looking into, which is like, I imagine the local ones are the more low impact producers. I'm not positive though. Yeah. And you know, I, I know that local does not necessarily mean low impact, but I think some people would probably like make that case. So I don't know. It's a, it's definitely a really, I think it's a, seems to be a really cool study. I think that when we talk about shifting people like globally towards a specific ethic, it's hard to picture people like radically altering as a whole, as a whole population, the way that they eat to say, go back to very local permaculture and all, all of these things. So I think that like in general, even though some people might, potentially pick out some small like examples of like well actually it's better if we eat a, a chicken's eggs here instead of getting this package thing from Gardein or whatever you know something it might be i'm just totally pulling that out of nowhere <laughs> i think that you know when we talk about shifting the global population towards something that is more sustainable that studies like this can be in- incredibly helpful because it points towards like more realistic solutions yeah no definitely i was just i was just looking at the article again and and just to see if they they did talk about like f- local stuff but it says it it tracked it analyzed 570 studies tracking the field to fork journeys of 40 different foods a lot of f sounds there but so i i imagine that they that they looked into that kind of stuff because again if they're looking they're doing that what is it called andy what's the uh the term for like how many miles your your food has traveled food miles or even carbon footprint. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like that's to, to me, that's what that sentence kind of implies that they were looking at. So I imagine that they were looking at some of the, the, the quote, like environmentally friendly ways of raising 
animal based products that that people are putting forward because I, I feel like they they it would be it would be irresponsible of them not to look at that and then come out with something that says even the environmentally friendly ways are not of raising animal products are not good. So I feel like they they probably looked into that stuff. Yeah, very cool. All right, Paul. Mm-hmm. So this week we're talking about picking our battles, and I think this next news story could certainly fit into that theme. So we got I got actually two related news stories, Andy. One from May 22nd and then the other from May 29th. So within a week of each other and very recently. The first one, Piglet Heist could land five Bay Area activists in prison for 60 years. So let me read a little bit from this article from the San Francisco Chronicle. Five members of a Bay Area animal rights activist group are facing felony charges and up to 60 years in prison after being accused of taking a pair of piglets from an industrial pig farm in Utah. They were charged after the FBI tracked the piglets to an animal rescue facility in Colorado. On Monday, the Attorney General of Utah charged Wayne Shung, co-founder of Berkeley's Direct Action Everywhere, and four other activists with four counts of second-degree felony and one misdemeanor for removing the piglets from a Smithfield Foods farm located in Beaver County, Utah, last March. The indictment details an investigation involving the Beaver County Sheriff's Office and the FBI following the activists' cell phone use to track their movements as well as the group's video and photos on social media to locate the piglets at Love in Arms Animal Sanctuary in Erie, Colorado. After Direct Action Everywhere's video was posted in July, Smithfield Foods released a statement that it launched an investigation and completed a third-party audit that showed no findings of animal mistreatment. Wait, so they're not killing animals? <laughs> I guess not. I, it, it's actually an animal sanctuary, Smithfield Foods. Mm. The foods are referring to the food that they give the animals. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Of course. And this is, what, this is what Smithfield Foods had to say. Based on the review of our animal care experts, the video appears to be highly edited and even staged in an attempt to manufacture an animal care issue where one does not exist, the statement read. The animals observed on the farm by the audit team were in good condition, appeared comfortable, free of clinical disease, and showed no signs of fear or intimidation in the presence of people. And I found another article talking about this issue that said also that the FBI was getting was going to animal sanctuaries and getting like DNA samples of the pigs to try and track down the correct pigs. So it's certainly I I feel like we've we've talked about cases like this before, Andy, but it seems like it's this like weirdly intense investigation for what is, you know, like pennies to this company. To, yeah. to Smithfield Food, two two pigs is is such a minuscule amount of money loss for them that like getting the FBI to go around and find finding DNA samples of pigs to like match the right pig, it's it's excessive and at least in my opinion, Andy, it seems to be more so the purpose of it seems to more so be to like get these people in jail for a long time in order to just like send a message to anyone else that's looking to do something similar, which really sucks. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's 100% just sort of them sending a message is them leaving a severed horse head in the, the bed of all activists to be like, don't you do this again? Because it has such a horrible waste of resources. And I think that even non-vegans should be pissed off that the FBI dedicated even a second of time to this whole thing. 
you think that non-vegans would be upset about this, Andy, but let me tell you, judging from the comments, they are not upset about that. <laughs> Uh-oh. Tell me more about these comments, Paul. So in this article and the other article that I'm going to read from, uh, like it was like a lot of comments of people calling these uh, activists like terrorists and being like, you're terrorizing these these farms and what you're doing is illegal and it's terrible and this is not the right way to get your message across and like you don't have to eat meat if you don't want to but let me eat meat if i want to and it 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 was really a lot of negative comments in the article from who who i'm assuming was non-vegans i'm assuming it was not vegans pretending to be non-vegans calling themselves terrorists but it really sucked it was it was discouraging to see yeah, not good. Not good at all. That's I know that this this whole thing has been going on for a while even though this article only came out fairly recently, but every time it popped up it just was just made me think about how many other issues this money could be spent on working on to like better humanity and save the planet and all all, like literally all the the crap that needs to be done in this world and i can only imagine you know paying the salaries of however many fbi agents to be going around to these farms to get dna samples from pigs it's just it's it's so disgusting i feel like someone should make a movie like a, a feature length movie that's about these FBI agents going around DNA testing these pigs to try to find the right ones. And then at the end, everyone's like, everyone that's watching the movie was like, wow, that was a really boring ass movie. And at the end, <laughs> at the end, the movie's like, that was the point. This is such a waste. Uh, you know, I feel like John Hamm would make a great FBI agent for this. <laughs> very true. Very, but then it would be a great movie if John well, Hamm's in it. That's true. <laughs> Handsome Ham over there. Handsome Ham. So, Andy, let me talk about this other article, and then I think we can talk about this, this, these events as a whole. Mm-hmm. This other article from May 29th, titled "Animal Activists Forcefully Remove Chickens from Petaluma Egg Farm, Forty Arrested." And this is coming to us from NBC in the Bay Area. Hundreds of animal activists forced their way onto a Petaluma egg farm Tuesday to raise awareness to what they call the inhumane treatment of chickens. About 40 activists were arrested, according to the Sonoma County Sheriff's officials. The activists call it one of the biggest actions in the Bay Area as hundreds of them converged on Sunrise Farms in Petaluma, protesting what they said are cruel conditions. We're exercising our right to give care to sick and injured animals, dehydrated animals, said Wayne Shung. The activists agreed to leave the property with the hope of negotiating an inspection with the owner, but the negotiations broke down. Dozens of sheriff's deputies arrived and geared up for a standoff. There was an understanding that the activists thought they were going to let 20 people in with video cameras. That was not part of the bargain, Spencer Crum of Sonoma County Sheriff's Department said. What a... What a villain name. Spencer Crumb. Spencer Crumb. Such a good name. Spencer Crumb with the candlestick in the (laughs) library. Sorry, I got like two lines left. Let me finish this article. (laughs) Later Tuesday, about 40 activists tried walking back onto the farm only to be arrested. So that's the scope of it. What I, Andy, found interesting is... so, So... you said that the first article that I read, it stems back a while, right? This happened, this has been, this investigation and these sorts of articles have been floating around for a while. Mm-hmm. But 
I found interesting that both of these articles, both involving DXC, both Wayne Chung heavily centered articles came out within one week of each other. I don't know. I just maybe I'm I'm thinking too conspiracy, conspiracy. into it, but but to me, uh, okay. So I will I will preface all this by saying I obviously don't. I hope that Wayne for these crimes does not go to jail at all. I I, I would not wish that upon anyone that's doing this sort of work. But part of me is like, is he? thinking well i'm about to go to jail so i might as well do all these super intense actions right away that can like get a bunch of publicity before i potentially go to jail do you think there's anything to that that's entirely possible paul like is it is it entirely possible <laughs> everything is entirely possible I, again i i i we we've talked I think in the podcast, did we talk about the the article kind of going into how DXC has very has has cult like uh, has like a cult like feeling to it? They do some some things that are that are suspicious like that. Have we talked about that on the podcast? We did. I mean, we've talked about them a number of times. And and yeah, I kind of wanted to give my caveat with this discussion to say that, you know, we're we're talking about this because this is something that's happening within the community. But I guess I will not speak for Paul, but I personally do not support DXE in any way, shape, or form for a number of reasons. I mean, stepping back to the beginning, neither of us have been particularly big fans of their tactics. But then, of course, all of this stuff has come out about uh, allegations of covering up abuse and a, a number of things in that regard. And then most recently, a lot of people have been discussing how, yes, they seem to be very cult-like. And I think most notably, Carol Adams recently came out with a blog post saying that she would no longer speak at any event that DXE had any representation, whether they were speaking or they're, they're merely tabling. She thought that it was irresponsible of her to be at an event knowing that her presence could potentially bring in people that might not otherwise come and then they'd potentially be exposed to and recruited by DXE. So that's how seriously she takes it. And I think that's how seriously all of us should take it. So that's my little caveat there. Yeah. And, and they are certainly like, I think that her worries are not unfounded, Andy. They are founded. Yes. I mean, Paul, we've been, we've been, we had, we talked about our own inklings that they felt kind of cult like all the way back to the episode where we were discussing the liberation pledge, where mm -hmm. they're telling people never to sit with or, you know, people that are eating animals at any meal and how it felt like it was really just sort of isolating people from their friends and family and support network. And that's definitely a cult like tactic. They were trying to get everyone to move to Berkeley because they thought that, you know, with enough people there, they could really get some stuff done and, you know, just sort of, like getting people away from their support network so they can manipulate them and, and use them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have left DXC that, that, you know, very strongly were a part of denying these allegations. And now they're saying coming out publicly. Yeah, I, I totally agree with these assessments. So I think it's important for us to, whenever we talk about DXC to in include those caveats. So people know that we're not, admiring what they're doing but it is i think important for us to discuss the tactics that are being employed by anyone within the movement yeah and and i think for me personally so andy gave 
gave his his feelings about the matter. For me personally, I think when I when I disagree with a group like this, it it for me it falls into two broad categories. There's the category of like this group or this person or these these people, specific people have either committed abuse or harbored abusers or have abuse allegations against them. Like, I think that that's one big category for me where I'm like, that's like an automatic no, no. And, and I like, I don't want to support. <laughs> I love your use of no, no in this very serious discussion. <laughs> that's an automatic no, no, <laughs> but, but like it, that, that's like, for me, that's an immediate disqualification of, any sort of support that I would ever lend to that group or, or those or those people those people or those sorts of things, and then the other big category for me is I disagree with this group's tactics, and in that category, it's less so me being like I don't like that person. It's more so me being like I I I admire that that person or those people have the, these intentions of doing good for the animals and, and fighting for animals and, and working for the animal rights community. I admire those intentions, but I think that they're going about doing it the wrong way. And for those people, I'm less like, I don't like that person. It's more like, I want to have a discussion with that person. Now with the other category, it's just like, I don't want to have a discussion with that person. I don't think that person should, those person, that group, those people should be in these positions of power that they're in. Now, <laughs> DXC for me falls in both of those categories, so it's like a it's like a super no no for me. But it's a no no no. It's a no no no. But so that's my feelings about DXC. What I wanted to say, Andy, about this specific movement, if you can tell me you you know me well, Andy. I I would not be offended. You can tell me if I'm completely off base. If this is an inappropriate conjecture for me to make, but what I was kind of getting at before is. Because D- maybe I'm biased because DXC has these cult-like tendencies. It's being compared to cults, especially recently. Like in in other cults, non-vegan related cults, we do sometimes see like the leader or the leaders when they start to feel like their empire is crumbling down. They do these intense, often tragic actions or or they carry out these these things that are terrible and they're oftentimes tragedies is this possibly like a small scale version of that is is this like dxc imploding and them being like well i don't care if now if if what is it 40 people get i don't care how many people get arrested like let's just do let's just do all this stuff it doesn't matter if we get arrested or not is it is it too carefree in terms of like how many people got arrested, is it irresponsible of Wayne who is possibly going to jail anyways to be like, it's okay if I put other people at risk of, of getting arrested? Those are all good questions. I don't really know if I have any firm gut feeling in, in either direction. I do think that I'm sure that the, the lead circle, the lead organizers at DXE think that it's probably a very strategic move to get public support on their side and to, to push the issue in the court of public opinion. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that prison is a horrible place that pretty much no human should be. And I think subjecting activists to that risk is a very serious thing and should not be taken lightly. 
And I'm wondering if it was in this case. So you said you just said something along the lines of like, should we do that? They should, they were maybe thinking like we should do these things to to affect the public opinion. Are you talking about the vegan public or the non-vegan public? Because I don't think anything that DXE does is affecting the non-vegan public in a positive fashion. I would generally agree with that. But personally, I think open rescues are pretty cool. Um, I think that that seeing animals being rescued from places of abuse should, in theory, have public opinion on our side. Can I can I throw something at you, Andy? And this is not this is not a criticism of DXE and it's not a criticism of people that choose to do open rescues, but it's just one of my thoughts on open rescues. And I'd like to I'd like to hear how you respond to it. Sure. So from anytime I've read like about open rescues or people making statements like this is why we are doing open rescues. This is the point of open rescues. There's always been something about there's always been a line like we don't believe that this is something that should be illegal. So therefore we choose not to hide our faces. Would you Mm -hmm. agree that that's that's in some of the philosophy behind an open rescue, or maybe sure. it is the philosophy behind open rescue yeah, ver- yeah. versus versus like a mass rescue. So, but to me, here's, here's, I'm interested to hear how you respond to this, Andy. For me, it's like, as long as animals are considered property, what these people are doing is always going to be illegal. And I guess, why I personally would not participate in an open, open rescue is because I feel like it's it's getting the wrong message across and, and and it would be confusing to the general public because the general public is always going to or everyone in, in the United States, you know, is always going to see stealing like in the in the general sense of the word stealing someone's property is illegal. Mm-hmm. And as long as animals are considered property it's always going to be illegal there's there's no way that an open rescue is ever going to be something that's legal like so if your idea is this should be something that's legal so i'm going to do it to me that doesn't make sense because it's never going to be legal and it's for me in in my opinion it's the wrong thing to be pushing for we're not trying to make stealing legal we're trying to make animals not property and and i don't think that that's what that i don't think that the open part of an open rescue i don't think that that it gets that message across i think it gets the wrong message across hmm that is interesting i agree with you that we are not trying to make stealing legal we're trying to make animals not property but isn't that what when you say this is not something that should be illegal it, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's always going to be illegal. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that per, the the sort of the counter view of that is that it, it could be said that by by doing this openly, that you are essentially showing people how urgent it, the situation that animals are in is, and how dire it is, and that I'm willing to risk my freedom in order to save the animals, and you're sort of showing how important the animals are. I get that. And, and, and I, I agree with that to some extent, but, uh, and, and I guess, I guess to play devil's advocate with myself, 
like I guess that if someone if if a non-vegan sees a video of an open rescue versus a closed rescue they are maybe more likely in the open rescue to to see the the humanity of the person that's committing the, the the open rescue that's doing the thing versus the with like someone's wearing like a ski mask or something like that it's easy to be like oh that's like some extremist and that's not a that's not a, like a i i can't relate with that person at all so i will say i think that in an open rescue it's maybe going to be easier for people non-vegans to relate to that person maybe but for me i don't think that that maybe this person will maybe relate to this to, to to the person doing the open rescue i don't think that that's worth like the the exponential amount of risk increase that you've incurred upon yourself by doing an open rescue like mm-hmm. is is that potential worth the fact that you how you have basically if if the farm or if the fbi or if, if whoever wants to file charges against you you've basically you've basically given them the evidence yeah i mean that certainly it certainly seems um ill thought out in that regard like i i don't but but i i will double down on what you said which is i think that the the imagery of the sort of the typical animal liberation front kind of activity the ski masks and all black or maybe camo or something like that like people do see that and they just think about about it as a very fringe extremist terrorist thing to do and when they just see a bunch of very normal looking people going out and doing this it kind of says i'm a normal person and maybe i should care about this because these normal people seem to care so much about it i i guess i'm just i'm interested i'm interested to see what non-vegans are saying about this because to me I'm still seeing them make comments like, oh, these terrorists and, and how dare they steal this this property from this hardworking farm. And these are just people trying to do their job. To me, it's like I'm still seeing those comments. So I'm almost like, what what's the point of, of putting yourself at such extreme risk? I, I think that the majority of the public still sees it as this fringe, extreme thing to do. Well, let me posit this. Because we have been talking about it from public opinion, I think, because I I brought that aspect of it up. But on some episode in the not-too-distant past, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Uh, uncharacteristically, Paul, I'm drawing a blank on whichever episode because it actually because you're so is. dehydrated. <laughs> God. I drank two gallons of water yesterday and did not pee once. It was horrible. <laughs> you asked me, we were, we were talking about the importance of tactics that curry favor in the court of public opinion when we're doing vegan education or activism or, or you know, and anything related to all, all of this, all of this stuff that we're dealing with. Right. And I said that it, you asked me for an example of, is there something that we do that is beneficial, but doesn't get the court of public opinion on our side. And I said very vaguely direct, actual direct action activities. I'm, I will include an open rescue under that very vague umbrella that I left. And I think that I would never condemn someone from removing an animal from a place of abuse, uh, I guess, unless they didn't have the proper resources to care for said animal after the fact. But maybe even then, maybe even then I would still be for it. So I think that this, to me, 
yes, it would be great if people saw the urgency of the issue and saw how important the issue was and, and identified with the people doing it. But I think for that animal that's rescued, I think that maybe that's more important. Andy, can we, can we transition this into the main discussion? Because I would like to tie this into the main discussion. Sure. I I think, I think we've said enough about these specific incidents, right? Yes. Before we do that, Paul. Okay. Oh God, I got some, I, I, I cannot forget the thing I want to say. So go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Write it down if you need to. Nah. Before we do that, Paul, we need to thank our amazing Patreon donors who help sustain the podcast for as little as $1 a month. And welcome on board to Celeste H., who joined us in this past week. Thank you. And if, yeah, if you want to help support the podcast, you want to help sustain us, make us more uh, accessible as well, because we're working on getting those episodes transcribed. And it's uh, the first of the month, Paul, so that means that we're going to have another episode transcribed pretty soon. <laughs> and we got to do another bonus episode at some And point. we do. We sure do. So, yeah, if you want bonus episodes, you want early access to episodes, you want some buttons and stickers, all that good stuff, just head over to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo, B-E-A-R-D-O. Hit that Patreon tab, or you can do a one-time donation through PayPal if you want. And we super appreciate everyone that's been wanting to throw a couple bucks our way every month. We do. Thank you so much. We, we really do appreciate it. All right, Paul. Hit me with that thought. Okay. So last, last episode on last week's The Bearded Vegans, in, insert clips of us talking from here. So, uh, on last week's episode, we, we were talking about a question that Cameron had asked us that was basically it was two-pronged. It was, it was saying, is there an effective way to engage farmers who truly believe that that what they're doing is in the best interest of the animals or that they really care for the animals and then the other question that Cameron asked was should we even focus on small local farmers or should we just kind of look at the the large scale you know industrial agricultural farms and what this conversation kind of turned into was us sort of weighing the pros and cons of different act, different types of activism. And then Andy, at one point you put forward to me, like if there was one, if there was one researched and, and statistically proven most effective and efficient form of advocacy, are we ethically and morally required to do whatever that one type of advocacy is? And we were talking about that. We were like, weighing the pros and cons of of different types of advocacy and so andy i want to continue that right now with what we were just talking about which is you i i feel like i know you were just pressing me because you like to to push my buttons a little bit but you were pushing me like like shouldn't we if there's this one if there's this one superior form of activism shouldn't we all be doing shouldn't we be doing this all the time and and i was kind of coming back with like well i think that that the same thing is not going to work for every person. So we need to have a diversity of tactics. But then we were talking about like, but not everyone has an infinite amount of time. So we need to, we need to also take into account how much, how much time and resources and energy we have to do different things. And so I guess my question is along those lines, isn't doing something I'm throwing this out for you, Andy. I'm I'm a blank slate. You can convince me one way or another, but isn't doing something like an open rescue for to remove two piglets 
with the potential to go to jail for 60 years, wouldn't you consider that a, a terribly inefficient use of time? Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly could not argue that whatsoever. But let me throw this at you, Paul. Mm-hmm. Throw everyone, back. Everyone has different skills. and Everyone has a different certain set of skills, Paul. <laughs> All right, Liam. And uh, I think that some people just are not good at going out and talking to people on the street. Some people can't design a website. Some people can't leaflet. Some people can't start a vegan bakery. There might be people, and the, the, the best skill they have to offer is to go out and rescue animals. And maybe that is the best use of their time. But, oh, dang, dang you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Episode over. I, I don't know. I just can't, like, I, to me, it just seems like the, the, the risk of, it, from a purely, is this effective for animals standpoint, from purely that standpoint, it just seems like I, I can't justify doing something like that. It, it For me, it just seems like and, – and it's not that I think that it's a bad thing to do. Obviously, I would rather have those animals, even just two, even just two animals, I would rather have them not in that situation than in that situation. But from an efficiency standpoint, I, I, I just can't – I can't seem to get behind it. It just doesn't seem, and I know you said like, maybe this person, this is, this is all that they know. This is all that they can do, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to be the thing that's efficient. It doesn't seem like it's going to really in, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like it could, it can really change anything. Yeah. Well, I think that there maybe two piglets. No, but I think there's probably a lot to be said for economic sabotage. And I don't know if that is something that is effective in changing the public's view about whether animals are property or not. But I do think that there could be specific weak points in certain industries that when targeted could really have a drastic effect on them and and give other people pause when thinking about getting into that industry. But yeah, I mean, like, honestly, Paul, whenever we talk about this stuff, it always just circles back around to if we had a vegan population, we wouldn't have to do these things. And therefore, I choose to spend my time working on making new vegans and sustaining current vegans. But I also think people could make the very valid point that, you know what, the world is not going to go vegan overnight. And we need to do these things in the meantime while we're educating people on why to go vegan. I, I guess I think I also worry that unless done in specific ways and very careful ways, I do worry that the two, those two different forms of activism, like the direct action, economic sabotage, open rescues versus the, the education to, to sway public opinion about these issues. I worry that they are at odds with each other sometimes. Like for instance, for instance, like all the, all the, the comments from the non-vegans on these two articles that I that I just read, they all seem to be very negative. And we've been very critical in the past of different actions where it's, you know, someone, a group of a group of people going into a Chipotle and just yelling at everyone and then leaving. And we've been critical of them because we're like, this is not. Yes, this is getting this is getting the idea of veganism into the public sphere. It's getting people to think uh, about 
I don't even know if I would go that far, well, Paul. It, but but you get the. I mean, they get news stories written about them. You know. Yeah, I feel like they're often pretty unclear. <laughs> like, they often don't really convey the message clearly, and often that is not translated into the media stories either. Okay. But yes, I mean, it gets people shaken up in a place of you know where violence against animals have been normalized. But I feel like it's it's just a very unclear expression of pure frustration and angst and anger that does more for the activist than it does for anything else. But I can see I can see I'm not saying I agree with this, but I can see the non-vegan public saying those same words about someone doing an open rescue or someone doing a, a more direct action type of type of advocacy. I can see someone saying like this is just someone upset about this thing and they went about they they are going about it the wrong way and they shouldn't have done this thing. But the difference is that the rescue actually results in an animal's lives being saved. But uh, but I guess back to my back to my original point was what happens if these two forms of activism are at odds with each other? One of them negatively affects the other one. Hmm. That is a good question. I don't know how negatively the open rescues affect people's ability to go vegan or to see the issue. I think it, I think it adds to the issue, but like judging from just the comments, it seems like people with an, I'm sure people with an already negative opinion about veganism are certainly being reinforced in their, it seems, being reinforced in their opinions through something like that action. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just sort of get the feeling that those people are always going to have that opinion. (laughs) Or like, like those people are going to have something negative to say about anything that we do. I think you're right. I do think you're right about that. I think you've said before, Andy, in I, I forget how you said this, but it was very well worded about how it's like when you're having like a Facebook debate or something like that, you're not convincing the person that you're directly arguing with. You're convincing the hundred people that are silently watching along with the debate and those sorts of things. And I, I do think that this does fall under that. It could fall under that where it's like, yes, we're not convincing this person that's calling these activists terrorists. We're not going to convince them to go vegan overnight, but maybe there are people that are reading that aren't going to comment that are more on the fence about these sorts of things. But then again, on the, on the flip side of that coin, isn't the person that's, that's saying like, aren't all the people that are saying like, these are terrorists, these people are wrong. They could also be convincing those people on the, on the fence to be like, Oh yeah, you're right. What these people, what these activists did are wrong. Like they shouldn't have done these things. Like I didn't think about it like that before. They are terrorists. Like it goes both ways. Yeah, that is, that is a good point. I think that, I don't know, I guess again, it's, it's really hard for me to say that the, the concrete saving of an animal's life now is not as important as the theoretical saving of an animal's life later. Like we don't, we don't, we do not know who is going vegan or not because of these things, but you can concretely say these two piglets are now living out their life on an animal sanctuary. But they're not anymore because they were taken well, back. <laughs> yes, yes. But 
But I guess the theory would go, just like if enough people went vegan, if enough people just started storming Smithfield Farms and taking enough pigs, you know, it, there'd be nothing anyone could do about it. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, that's what people say about the world going vegan. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that that's the whole world going vegan is certainly more realistic than than a very small percentage of the population committing enough direct actions to to change the way that the majority of the population lives their lives. But maybe enough people don't do it because people like us sit around telling them it's not worth their time. <laughs> oh, no. Are we part of the problem? <laughs> <laughs> You're part of the problem, Paul. I'm not condemning it. <laughs> no, but I, I don't think – I think that – Andy – I'm going to say this. I think that if every single vegan today did like a direct action like that, it would still not shut down the animal agricultural industry forever. It would save a lot of animals' lives. But I'm sure many of those animals would be taken back. Maybe. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, you're you're definitely right that as long as there is a public desire to consume and otherwise exploit animals in a number of different ways, it's hard to imagine that so many animals being rescued wouldn't would stop that system. But yeah, I don't know. What if it did become so economically dangerous for a company to do that, where every time they bring in some animals, or people run in and steal them, they'd have to <laughs> really get some high-tech, you know, intense security going on. Like, maybe it could force some kind of change. I don't know. But yeah, again, we're, we're looking at, like, you know, 1% to 2% of the U.S. population versus the other 98 99%. It's certainly not an even battle. But I guess you could also say most most if if like all of a sudden every vegan was so passionate about it that they went and did that, it's I would say that the average non-vegan is pretty apathetic to the whole thing. Like they they are not as actively engaged in promoting the consumption of animals and exploitation of animals as vegans are in being actively engaged in opposing the exploitation of animals. So yes. maybe there would just be a bunch of apathetic 98% people sitting around while all this happened. Who knows? But, I don't know. But but I also, <laughs> in this hypothetical situation, I also think that vegans would get arrested at a, such an in, intense rate that like the population of vegans that are even able to do these sorts of actions would very quickly diminish. And I also am positive andy in this theoretical situation i am positive <laughs> that that new laws would get passed so quickly that would prevent this stuff from happening or that would like you know make it like a give vegans like a life sentence for doing something like this because it's already i mean uh, i i don't think that wayne is going to get the maximum 60 years in prison and i hope that he doesn't but like if that's even a potential for stealing two pigs like if this if this situation this hypothetical situation actually happened, like that would get increased so fast to be like you just got seven life sentences for stealing a for like touching a pig. I mean, we're pretty much already looking at that because of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which gives people these sort of terrorist enhancements if they do anything that affects the operation of an industry or a business that uses animals. So. I imagine that's why the sentence could potentially be so high already. And I'm and I will say this, I'm I am 
150% vegan. <laughs> I'm 150% like obviously against that. Like I I don't I think that is absurd and unjust and and real shitty. But but does the existence of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act does its existence mean that we need to tackle this issue from a different from a different way? Maybe or or maybe Paul maybe it says that these tactics are effective and that's why the industries wrote this legislation to get passed to begin with because if it didn't matter then why would they care? But but we're also no okay okay you're right you're right I agree with you on that I agree <laughs> with you on that but we're also seeing we are also seeing legislation that is making trying to make it harder for vegan products, you know, like the the French law. That's another example of something that's basically to me, to me in in the same way that yes, okay, Andy, I agree with you. Maybe the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act is a response to the fact that this thing that people are doing is effective. I would also agree that I mean, I, mean, I would also say that the like some of this other legislation is 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 saying like when Hellman's tried to sue tried to sue just uh, Hampton Creek it's also saying like wow these things are effective and they're hurting us so we need to try to do something about it mm-hmm. like i do i do also think that i don't what am i even trying to say right now but i i it sounds like you're just agreeing with me in a really long-winded <laughs> way <laughs> maybe maybe I, I i don't know i just i I just feel like I worry that that the sort of direct action is like a dead end and that it would never be able to get us where we want to get in a similar way, Andy, in a similar way that we would talk about not ex- not exactly the same, but in a similar in a similar way that we would talk about how we don't believe that welfare laws would ever be allow us to reach the goal of full veganism that we want to reach. I worry that do doing something illegal that will always be illegal. If you keep doing that thing and just that thing will never make that thing legal, you know, mm-hmm. like similar yeah. to the, similar to the open rescue thing that I was just saying, doing this thing, it's like people are doing it. Because they're like, this should be legal, but doing that thing will not make that legal by the very principle of what it is. It, it won't be legal. And, and so I, I worry that. And, and of course, I know I can acknowledge that we're not in a vacuum and this is not ever going to be direct action is not ever going to be the only thing, the only type of vegan activism that happens in the world. So we're not in a vac- vacuum and maybe in conjunction with other things, it can be beneficial but going back to my other point, I just worry that it's potentially it's potentially at odds with other forms of activism in terms of specifically how it affects the public opinion. Well, that is an interesting point, Paul. <laughs> should we should we move on to different types of activism? <laughs> we should. I mean, I guess I guess ultimately where I come down is that I would never condemn anyone for removing animals from a place of abuse. That's sort of my bottom line. I think that you you know you you're bringing up the point that they're they're doing it openly, no masks because they think it you know the the statement is we don't think this should be illegal, so therefore we are not hiding our faces. 
I, I don't think that the point of doing it is to make it legal, though. You know, like I think the fact that it's just a line that they're saying we don't think this should be illegal, therefore we're doing it openly. But I don't think the main goal of the protest of the the action is to just make it legal all of a sudden. I so I think that that's like mischaracterizing why they do it, and so I don't think that that would be the only reason to say that you shouldn't do it. You know, it, it's more about like a matter of principle. It's about treating this issue of animal liberation seriously and saying that you know if we take the lives of animals seriously if we believe that they are not mere objects then that means like engaging with this issue in the urgency that it requires i think some people would evaluate that and say well if we view these animals as essentially prisoners of war we would want to rescue them and we should go do that yeah i feel you andy all right well paul i think We'll leave the 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 open rescue issue on the table for there. I I would love to hear what people think about this. I mean, I'm not. I I, I both very much agree with you, Paul. Like as I've said, I'm on team vegan education all the way. To me, that in, by my assessment, that's one of the most important things we could do, along with increasing accessibility to vegan food for everyone. But. I also just, again, would never condemn anyone for doing it. And if they feel like that's the only thing that they have to contribute to this movement, why not? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right. <laughs> you have such a tentative smile on your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are, we, what are we moving on to? Okay. So we spent a long time talking about this open rescue thing, and this is going to be like quite a bit of a pivot, I think, even though it's all in the same theme of sort of picking your battles. So we, yeah, you, Paul, you kind of summarized the email that we had gotten from Cameron about talking to farmers and last episode. And if you've gotten this far and haven't listened to the last episode for some reason, I would say definitely go listen to that one first before continuing on. But you know, we were asked what's an effective way to engage in a, a farmer and is it is it even worth it to engage in a farmer? And my opinion was if you find yourself in that conversation, have the conversation and here are some tips in how to engage in that conversation. I think the most important one is making sure that you are the one framing the issue and that it's not an issue of how bad the abuse is, but just the fact that an animal is being used at all. But I I really want to get across the point that, like, maybe you are not the best person to have that conversation with that farmer. Maybe that conversation should be with another farmer who has gone vegan and transformed their farm into an animal sanctuary. And, you know, we're just not going to be credible messengers for certain people living certain lives. And that, that goes in so many different directions. But I wanted to do a more thorough explanation of that and put out some examples that are probably something that the everyday person that's not going to a farmer farm protest is dealing with and, and things that I see all the time and, and talk about whether we think it's like an appropriate time for us to push veganism or whether it's time for us to leave that to someone else better suited or just not at all. So Paul, we came up with a few different examples that we wanted to sort of suss out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think the first one that I wanted to talk about, I guess it's kind of two of them, but, um, you know, people say recovering from an eating disorder or people that are dealing with some sort of specific medical condition or ailment where they've been told they have to have a specific diet or maybe even is they have a ton of different allergies. And let, so let me throw this out there. 
you know, when, when I was doing advocacy work, when I was tra traveling around doing pay-per-view activism and showing people videos of, of what happens on animal agriculture operations, talking to them about going vegan afterwards, I would occasionally, you know, a few times a week through, you know, many hundreds of conversations, someone would say, well, I have Crohn's disease or I have IBS or I have, you know, whatever it is. And because of that, I cannot go vegan. And in the moment, I, you know, I, I, maybe I didn't have enough knowledge to have that conversation. And then after that day was over, I would say, let me go home and research how to deal with Crohn's with a, a vegan diet. How to, you know, essentially because I was telling myself, I need to know how to have this conversation. And, it, and I kind of feeling like I needed to be able to prove to them that they could go vegan. Mm -hmm. But I think my stance on that has has changed. And I don't think that it's my place to prove to someone that they can go vegan if they're in a, an intensely different situation than I am. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess it just tell, – tell, tell me what you think about this if you feel like it's totally wrong because, I, you know, we're, we're always feeling like we have to advocate for everyone. We have to never admit that there's any situation in which someone couldn't go vegan, grant, you know, given access to healthy foods and all of that stuff, right? But I don't know. I guess I just feel like it comes across as, like, really insensitive when we're trying to prove to someone that they can do this thing when – it would require doing all these extra things that we ourselves are not actually having to do. Like, what do you think? I, I think I, for the most part, I agree with you, Andy. I, I think the, the main criticism from vegans that vegans would say would be to, to what you said would be, well, like what the animals are going through is so much worse than you having to take these few extra steps. That being said, I, I think I think that's maybe it's it's glossing over the fact that we still live in this society that is so very not vegan where where what we are suggesting is absolutely abnormal to what this person is probably living and I I think that because of that we should acknowledge that this person is probably going to have a very different reaction than than what we are than than what we would want them to and then than how we're feeling unless we also have that specific condition. So, I think for the most part Andy, I agree with you. I think that I'm trying to think like what I would actually say cuz cuz this is, you know, after the person's watched the movie or after the person's watched a short clip is exposed to these ideas and now you're having a conversation with them and like then they throw it at you. Like, I want to think that there is some response that you can have that's not just like, oh, okay, never mind. You don't need to go vegan, you know? Yeah, well, I think I think asking people, you know, barring this condition, if that wasn't an issue, would you want to be vegan? Right? And if they yeah. say no, then that is one conversation. And if they say yes, it's actually really painful to me that I feel like I can't be fully vegan and knowing that I'm participating in this all these atrocities – you know, I think that that sort of will will get to the root of someone's attitude about all of this. And then you could say, you know, I might not be the best person to have this conversation with you, but there is actually this really great vegan with Crohn's Facebook group. And there are people that are that are in your position. And if you feel like this is something that you want to work on, there are definitely steps that you can take in that direction. 
you know, and sort of showing empathy and, and providing resources for people. And then, well, what about if they say, because I think that's a phenomenal response. What about if they say like, no, I don't think I, or no, I don't want to be vegan. Well, if because then to me, that is not necessarily because of their condition. That's their attitude about animals in general. And then would you steer the conversation more towards that and like try to get it less about them particularly and more about the animal issues? I think so. I think so. And I think that there's also non food related issues that we can we can talk about. Yeah, I I think that's a good idea. I, I think. It's like a, I'm, I'm imagining like a flow chart in my head. It's like they've said that they have this illness that I don't have. Like, do they want to be vegan? Yes. Go this way. They don't want to be vegan. No, go this way. But I think I think that both those responses that you said are good because neither of them are saying like, I'm telling you what you should do. One of them is saying like, there are other people in a similar situation as you like, let me try to find that resource for you. And then the other ones being like, well, let's talk about like the animals and let's, let's dig a little bit deeper in the issues and, and, and your feelings about why this is an okay thing to do type of deal. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like, for sure, it's a really bad look for vegans that just sort of go around and sort of demonize people that are in these positions and tell them that they're they're horrible people because they have they know one person that recovered from an eating disorder on a vegan diet and therefore everyone can do it. And it's like well eating disorders are different for everybody and it it just feels like it's not coming at this from a place of empathy and a place of understanding and a place of nonviolent communication if you will Paul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know like I feel like it's just there's there's so many better ways to talk to people about these things than just feeling like we have to be able to prove that they could go vegan and therefore they're a horrible person because they did not go fully vegan. And yeah, and like sometimes there is just a lot of baggage wrapped up in the fact that they just don't want to go vegan or they just don't view animals as having any sort of inherent moral worth. And that always makes things really messy and really complicated because of it. But you got to sort of parse those things out and and separate one from the other and and sort of get at their their feelings and their attitudes. I think that uh, this is something that I was thinking about, which is in terms of time and and like resource usage, uh, like, like, Paul, I agree that we shouldn't just if someone says I have this thing or I have this situation, you shouldn't be like, okay, it's fine. You shouldn't go vegan. But I also think that sometimes cases like that, you have to recognize I can have a short conversation, but I'm not going to get too hung up on this because there are literally billions of other people out there for me to be talking to. And like the truth of the matter is, and I know that as vegans, we don't like to think about this, but one person going vegan in terms of supply and demand and economics and like all of those aspects of it has a pretty minimal impact on the world you know and so i think that sometimes as vegans like we we stress out about whether the mono and diglycerides are vegan and all of these things and and i think that like sometimes it's like okay to step back and be like you know what i'm doing my best and i am i'm i don't need to feel like i have to convince every single little person ever in any condition ever to go vegan you know like like move on to the next person 
think the vegan police are on call after that comment, Andy. Oh, God, Paul. I, um, yeah, they're not listening this far in the episode anyway. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And I also think, because what I was actually going to say, which ties right along into this, is say say you're talking to someone with like a very specific illness and you go through your little mental flow chart and you're like, well, would you like – would you like to go vegan or like, do you want to try to go vegan? And they say like, no, I have no interest in this. And you kind of probe that a little further and it just keeps coming back to like, no, I can't do this because of, because of this, this illness that I have. And like, even if you try to steer the conversation away from that, it just keeps kind of coming back to it. I think that would be a good example of a, of a conversation that you can just, you know, wrap up, try not to get hung up on, and be like, there are other people that I can talk to because that that one, at that at that one moment, it does not seem like that person. Like it, it, I feel like you can assess if if you truly feel like that person's mind is or their beliefs or anything really is changing, and if it really doesn't seem like it, then it's okay. I think rather than get into an argument, it's okay to just end that conversation. Yeah, and I, I think also something that's important to remember is that we can also sort of fall back on non-food related exploitation and 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 just say like, well, you know, if this is something that you care about, there's other things that we can work on. We can not go to rodeos, we can do our best to purchase products that haven't been tested on animals and you know, all, all of these other things that we do. Next time you have to buy a belt, try and buy a non-leather belt, something like that. And I think that Interactions with a really empathetic and and caring and understanding vegan go a really, really long way towards planting a seed with someone. Because I, I know for me personally, the vegans that I met when I was, you know, going to shows back in the day, Paul, like that were like very sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, militant about the whole thing and kind of high and mighty about it and, and had this certain air about them. They, they never inspired me to want to go vegan. But then when I met some like real chill vegans who were very cool and caring, kind people that opened me up to it. And, and who knows, maybe I was just at a different place in my life. Maybe I had learned more about the issues at that point, but they were the people that I went, Oh, I would like to be like them because I think that they're, they're the type of human that I want to be operating in this world. You know, Andy, back when I was a, a lowly vegetarian in high school, I remember going to some specific shows and there was one one particular one particularly kind vegan there who would make a, a chili recipe occasionally and bring it to shows sometime. <laughs> Are you talking about me? I'm talking about you, Andy. Yeah, I mean that's what I used to do. I used to um make baked goods, make a big pot of chili and some cornbread, and I would go down and sell them for like one to three dollars just to just to show people, like, hey, vegan food is really awesome and and have, like, some zines or some flyers or something if people want to take them. But I think that sort of just having, like, a nice, kind vegan presence in, in a room speaks, you know, a lot of words. <laughs> I, I <laughs> Speaks a lot of words. Speaks a lot of words. <laughs> speaks a lot of good words. I, I do, like, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of like, why doesn't, why doesn't that happen more at shows? It's a lot like, of work. I, <laughs> yeah, but but for someone that's also not like playing in a band or something like that, just make a big old pot of slow cooked chili. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when my band was touring all the time, we had a rice cooker and in that rice cooker we would make chili, we'd make rice and beans. And 
it's an incredibly cost-effective way of feeding a whole band, and that's why I started making chili in the rice cooker at all these shows. But I would show up. I wouldn't cook the chili ahead of time. I would just, in front of people as the show was beginning to start, open the cans, throwing the stuff in, seasoning it, mixing it, because I wanted people to see how easy it was that I was creating this really wholesome meal for, like, 10 bucks that was going to feed 30-plus people. And I was just doing it at a show on a merch table, you know? And when we were touring, we would feed the band. Everyone would have, like, two bowls of chili. But then we would also feed the promoter and, like, a few other people if, if people were around and they seemed hungry. So, I don't know. I, I Yeah, I feel like it's just, like, a really warm way of introducing people to how great vegan food can be and how caring vegans can be. And I think that... I'm sure someone would remember if they were hungry and they were fed a bowl of chili for a lot longer than if someone shouted at them or even if someone handed them a flyer. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, obviously there's the message is not necessarily conveyed with a bowl of chili like it would be with a leaflet or a flyer. But, you know, it's been said people will remember how you made them feel for much longer than they will remember what you actually said to make them feel that specific way. So I don't know. I think that those things are important. I think that they're, they're small pieces of a much larger puzzle. And like you said before, I mean, you have the chili, but then you just have some flyers next to the table that people can take. Boom. Boom. Yeah. yeah. It's a very non-judgmental way. It's people can take the information if they want it and they can have conversations with me if they want to. I make myself available. And yeah, when we used to have house shows all, all the time, I used to make a big pot of curry and I wouldn't start, I wouldn't make it until people showed up and everyone's hanging out in the kitchen and I just, you know, pop out a bunch of veggies and start chopping them up and cook it right in front of people. This is like my version of a cooking demo. Just be like, <laughs> this is so easy. Like you don't need to have any specific knife skills or anything like that. And then by the end, everyone's loving the food and they got this like whole experience. I just imagine like you're cooking with your back to them, but you keep looking behind you like, are you watching me? Are you watching me cook this? <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, at the last house I was doing house shows, the, there's just like a t- kitchen table in the middle. So it was like very much in the center of everything. But <laughs> yeah, I have a little monitor so people can see what's going on. Yeah. I have the little like Michael Jackson like <laughs> ear set and microphone to project my voice. <laughs> It's it's being projected all throughout the house. <laughs> and I said, now I chop the sweet potato. <laughs> all right, let's move on to another another situation. Sure. Well, Andy, I, I think I kind of feel like this number three that you have written here is – I think it would be handled similarly. So you had written down – Someone with a vastly different income or life situation than than we have. If you're trying to advocate to someone like that, or if you are advo- you're in the process of advocating and someone brings that up, could that like I feel like my response might be very similar to the to the someone that 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 has like a very specific illness or disease that requires a specific diet. I feel like the 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 response would be the same, where it's like well, are you interested in this sort of thing? And if they are, then you can maybe help them out with some resources. And if they're not, then you can shift the focus to more animals. Do you, do you think that this situation requires us to back off like a little bit more than the, than the illness situation? I think that this situation, I, I agree. I think it would be a similar mental flow chart that you would be working through. Uh, should you find yourself in conversation and then they drop, oh, this is what my life experience is. 
I think that uh, to me, the lesson from thinking about like this kind of situation, because I feel like people in all all sort of uh, economic situations and 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 all of the sort of demographics, whatever, you'll find people that have a medical ailment or an eating disorder or something of that nature. And so you might stumble into that conversation more easily than you would someone with like a, a vastly different financial income or just totally different life experience. Um, to me, the lesson from this one is kind of that you don't need to seek out those conversations with people. Like, don't feel like you have to go into a, a like, if you are a middle class person, don't feel like you, you have to seek out the, the low income communities and go save them and tell them what they need in order to, to go vegan or, you know, whatever it might be. I think it's important to sort of stay in your lane in that regard. And again, like speak to your people. doesn't mean you can't have these conversations if you find yourself in them, but I think it's important to pick our battles correctly, to pick our locations for those battles correctly. And to me, that's what this point really speaks to. So like if say you're in, say you're in the midst of a conversation and then someone like you're having conversation with someone and someone says, say like, well, I, I get food stamps and that's how I purchase all my food. So it's like, I don't think that this is possible for me. Do you think that, do you think that there is value in that conversation for you to acknowledge that like you are right? I don't have this experience. I don't have the same experience as you. Yeah. I, th- I think that acknowledging that goes a long way. Cool. That's what I was thinking, too. I just wanted to to bounce that off you. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, I guess, again, this sort of just goes back to, like, not feeling like we have to prove that everyone can go vegan and having this attitude that if you can prove someone is in a position where they could go vegan and then they don't, that they're a really horrible, evil person. I think that, you know, we see a lot of middle to upper class vegans that really demonize low income communities and, and poor folks. Because, well, rice and beans are cheap and, you know, you can just go to the bulk bin and shop at your local farmer's market at the end of the day when they're throwing away their produce and all these things that require a ton of extra time and effort to do that I think, honestly, a lot of us that have better means for for getting food or whatever don't have to engage in and comes across as really uncaring and not genuine when when people sort of advocate in that way and it doesn't mean you can't say like okay well if you had more money would you want to be engaging in this and then say there's actually some really great resources of people that are on food stamps and they do eat a vegan diet and they engage in vegan activism in these ways and uh let me help you find those if that's something you're you're interested in and i you know i think that we we can do that i, I was going to say I personally, before I would go to that line, I would uh, like I would assess if this was, and I think that this is what you would say too. I would like assess whether or not they are interested in 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 looking for these sorts of resources because I think it might be a bad look if if you are talking about veganism, someone says, "Well, like I can't do this because of my financial situation." I think it would be a bad look if your immediate response was, well, look at this person that's doing it and they're in that same situation as you. I, I think it's kind of like, one, it's going to make that person feel real shitty because it's like, and and I, I imagine they're going to have a, a negative reaction 
to that because they're, they're going to be like, F you, you don't like, you don't, you're not that person. You're not me. Yeah. But then also I feel like it's, I don't know. To me, it's almost using like that third person as like a pawn to be like, Hey, like this is, this is the token person that's vegan with food stamps. So let me just kind of like throw their name out everywhere so I can kind of prove that because this one person has done this thing, everyone can do this thing type of deal. Yeah. Well, that's why I did say ask them. Yeah. No, no, no. If those weren't their limitations, you know. Yeah. No, no. I definitely knew that. I I wasn't saying that like against you. I was kind of maybe slightly elaborating on it. (laughs) Andy's giving me a fist shaking face right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it's just sort of important for us as a community to not demonize those that do have some obstacles that make it a little harder for them to be vegan. You know, like showing empathy, and that's like a consistent theme in this conversation, and and I guess hopefully all of our conversations. But like showing empathy and and caring goes such a long way, and it just it doesn't do us any favors as a community. You know, we're already perceived as being these holier than thou, moral high ground people that rub it in people's faces. And, you know, when we take these positions that like, well, this group of people with low income were able to do it, but but so that means everyone that has a low income has to do it. And you're an evil person if you don't, and you must, you must hate animals if you don't do this. It's like, ah, there's, you know, there's, there's so many issues wrapped up in this and it's important that we address them. I think also a lot of this, Paul kind of, it also relates back to our conversation about the open rescues and that, you know, like, well, if we just get a vegan world, we won't have to deal with this stuff. And it's like, yeah, if we had a vegan world, if we had a vast majority of the population that were vegan, like vegan, like plant-based food would be the norm, right? And access to it would, would be presumably more normalized and more of a thing that's available everywhere. And so it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, may, maybe it isn't the best battle for us to go and feel like we have to prove that someone with a really low income is able to do this thing it's like maybe let's work on our own communities let's work in our own backyards if if you're like paul and i who are i'm guessing middle middle of the road income kind of people i don't know low low to middle something like that <laughs> i live in a van <laughs> andy i was i was gonna say you said something like oh well what uh, we always promote empathy or like i hope that that's a theme throughout our episodes i was gonna say except for that one where andy was promoting pushing the human extinction button <laughs> <laughs> some would say that's an empathetic position paul <laughs> some would say that's the ultimate empathetic situation <laughs> it's because life is pain <laughs> so we're gonna th- we're gonna talk about one more situation and and again if you haven't listened to last week's we also a lot of last week's was focusing about you know talking to the farm workers or talking to the slaughterhouse workers so we've already kind of covered those situations last week but this last one we want to talk about is advocating to family members and close friends. So Andy and myself have both taken the position in prior episodes of don't get hung up about convincing your family to go vegan. And I do still, I still adhere to that because I think that not for all people, but for, 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 for some people, their family members are their main support system, if not their only support system. And I think that advocating that we as vegans should really try and convince our family members to go vegan 
is synonymous with advocating for some possible pressure or tension or strain on those relationships. And, and I think that is an, an unfair thing to advocate for. Now, this is not to say that there are not many vegans out there who have done this, who have convinced their parents or their family members to go vegan or to reduce the amount of meat that they, they have eaten, to which I would say, that's awesome. I think that that's great. I think for me, the problem lies in us putting pressure on other vegans to do the same thing. And again, I think this whole conversation kind of stems down to like, we don't know someone else's situation. It's, it's, Unless you do, but, but, but for the most part, we don't know other people like other strangers. We don't know their situation. So I think that's how we have to, we have to come into these sorts of conversations with that acknowledged with, with, with the fact that, that we might not know what someone else is going through. So that's why I think I'm still, I'm still sticking with don't put pressure on other vegans to have to convince their family members to go vegan or to put pressure on their family members to go vegan. If you want to do that yourself, I think that that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I I think also it's important to keep in mind that you could be really messing with your own sense of security and happiness. If you do have a good relationship with your family and you all of a sudden place a ton of importance on converting them to veganism, I think that it's often a recipe in unhappiness. If we, I don't want to say futility, right? But definitely unhappiness that, you know, we get so hung up on convincing this one person that we really care about and we really respect. And we've, you know, especially when we're new vegans, we've had our eyes open to this whole thing. We're unplugged from the matrix and we're like, oh my God, everyone needs to know about this. Everyone needs to make this change. And then you're confronted with this reality that all these people that you love and care about and respect and feel like are very thoughtful, intelligent people are not feeling the same way about animals as you are. And it's a really disheartening experience. Maybe they're even making fun of you. Even if it's not that bad, the fact that they're, they're giving you a little ribbing about it every now and then, like that can be really devastating. And to them, it's just this, this simple little thing. They're telling a joke, but to you, it kind of means the world. And so if we get so hung up on getting these people that we love to to go vegan, but maybe they're someone that's going to take them 10 years before they finally go vegan. And in that meantime, you're, you're just sort of feeling alienated from them and you're feeling upset and sad and frustrated. Maybe you're even questing your own abilities as an advocate because you've gotten a couple of your friends to go vegan or some strangers to consider veganism or whatever it might be. But you you can't get your brother to go vegan. You can't get your dad to go vegan can't get your son, you know, whoever it might be in your family. I think that this is a really important part of knowing when to pick your battles because these are people that you're presumably in contact with semi-regularly, maybe seeing, maybe you live with them. And it's going to be this like constant reminder to you. And if you don't just learn to accept them for who they are and love them for who they are, this even goes back to the conversations we've had, Paul, about how to people who are dating non-vegans or maybe they've been married for a few years and one person goes vegan, the other person doesn't. And it's like, you just have to love and accept them for who they are. And the vegan thing might come or it might not in your lifetime, but ultimately we're going to be better advocates when we're feeling mentally well and not stressed out and not anxious and not depleted and not sad and not incomplete because we couldn't get a family member or other loved one to go vegan. 
We'll put Andy. And I, and I think this, this directly applies to close friends as well, who for many people fulfill like the familial role for people that might not be super close to their family, have close friends who they're, they have that same relationship to. So I think all of what you just said similarly applies to, to close friends. I will say there's probably a difference when, when there's like, either parental relationships involved if, if like you are the parent and you're vegan I, like i feel like those are different situations that we've we've talked about before but in general i feel like family members and close friends kind of they they have similar roles in different people's lives definitely and and i i think it's also important to you know in in thinking about this you know it's it's important to keep in mind that 99% of us were not vegan at some point and maybe it took one you know like maybe it took one instance to make us vegan when we were exposed to something maybe we had to be exposed to to the horrors of slaughterhouses a hundred times before we decided to make the change but I think it's silly to judge people like your family members or someone or get 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 angry at them or yell at them for not being vegan when we ourselves were not vegan, maybe a month ago, maybe 10 years ago, but there was some point when we were not vegan as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's um, very important to keep in perspective. I think at all times and literally with the close family member, friend, lover or not, even just members of the general public strangers, it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think that kind of brings us to the end of this conversation. I think the the final thought that I want to impart on everyone is that I think some people could listen to this conversation and read it as us essentially saying that we are like giving people permission to exploit animals. That if we are giving ourselves permission to opt out of trying to advocate to certain people or, or recognizing that certain people are not the best people for us to be advocating to, that it's us giving like express approval of those people consuming animals. And I think that that is a wrong way to look at this situation. I think we should look at it as us giving ourselves permission to use our time effectively and wisely and permission to be empathetic towards other people. Yeah, no, Andy, I definitely agree. That was very that was very well put, and I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that said, Paul, I would love to hear from the Beardos out there, as always. I would like to know how you feel about what we said, but also are there other situations in which you feel like it's okay to give ourselves permission to sort of back off from the conversation? I'm sure there's a ton that we haven't thought of. We'd love to, to continue to discuss this this topic so definitely send in those emails to the bearded vegans at gmail.com <laughs> yeah let us know let us know what you think andy do you got anything good coming up yeah you know what paul this weekend another double header <gasps> yeah yeah you're gonna be at the philly veg fest in philadelphia your hometown for a little while longer yeah my, for two more weeks my shortest <laughs> commute for a veg fest yet hell yeah and I will be at the, and that's June 9th. That's the Philly Veg Fest. June 10th, I'll be at the Asheville Vegan Fest, Asheville, North Carolina. I'm really excited for that. And I'll actually be tabling the two days before the big main festival, June 8th and 9th, where it's a lot of the speaker days. So that should be pretty exciting. 
And let's see here. June 16th, the Tri-State Veg Fest in Edison, New Jersey. June 30th, the Vegandale Food and Drink Fest in Chicago, Illinois. I'm hoping it's not 108 degrees outside at that one. I hope not either, Andy. But you know what, Andy? <laughs> I, not, that, not that you necessarily weren't doing this, but I think drinking a lot of water the day before goes a long way as well in mm. staying hydrated. That's that's a that's a good point. I think I'm still making up for it because I've drank almost a full Nalgene worth, and I just don't have to pee at all, and I have oh, to man. pee all the time. So it's just like my body's like, yes, please, more, more, <laughs> more. Yeah, no, stay stay hydrated, Andy. Yes, everyone, please stay hydrated and wear sunscreen. <laughs> anyway, I got a ton more dates all the way through November, but you can find me or Paul behind the Compassion Company table at all those dates that we just listed which is my clothing line, and you can find those dates, deets, and links at CompassionCo. It's CompassionCo.com. And, yeah, come look for that bright green tablecloth and the unicorns and come say hi. We'll hook you up with a button and sticker if you say, what's up, Beardo? Woo. I, had, I had some tentative what's up, Beardos at the, at the Lancaster Veg Fest, people saying, like, what, what's up, Beardo? Is that, am I the only person that's ever said that? Is that a thing that people actually say? But yes, people are actually saying it. I I haven't figured out yet how to react non awkwardly to it, so I'm still working on that from my end. But I was like, "Hey, what's going on?" I give them like, "Hi, I'm Andy," and they're like, "I know." (laughs) (laughs) It's a good time. It's a good time. So yeah, I I like the people that come up and very confidently and assertively like, "What's up, Beardo?" and they like (laughs) strike a pose. Like I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of that. Paul, the the theme, obviously, of this show is picking and choosing our battles mm-hmm. because there are so many battles to choose. If you could put a number on it, how many number of battles do you think there are out there? There's Is there seven battles, Andy? <laughs> no, there's not seven battles, but I don't know. It's probably a lot. It's probably more than 50 different types of advocacy you could choose from, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's also important to know when to pick and choose the words that you're going to use because language is important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you know there is 1,701, 476 words in the English language? I did not know that. If I had to narrow them down, if I had to pick and choose my seven favorite words, I think they would be the following seven. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. But the cheese cream that they used was outstanding. It was so much better than anything that I've had that's on the market. So, did you say cheese cream? Did I? (laughs) The cheese cream. (laughs) Gets bit a long day and I'm dehydrated. Regarding the French law that doesn't allow vegan products to act. I added a new thing, Paul. Oh, we got a new thing. A new thing. I'm calling this campaign announcement. The indictment details an investigation involving the Beaver County Sheriff's Office and the FBI following the activist's cell phone. Uh, 
The indictment details and the indictment details and the indictment. that indictment detail, Paul? <laughs> the indictment details an investigation involving the Beaver County Sheriff's Office. The indictment. <laughs> Paul, you're giving me your best blue steel right now. <laughs> so this utter, this utter, this utter article. Like no utter. Like no utter. Titled "Animal Activists Forcibly Animal Activist." I'm so I'm so sorry, Andy, that I'm going to have a terrible time editing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) One of my thoughts on open rescues, and I'd like to I'd like to hear how you respond to it. Sure. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, sometimes I forget that you can see me, Paul. Does the existence of the animal enterprise, animal terrorist, and animal enterprise terrorist, right? Animal enterprise terrorist act. Is that what it is? Terrorism. Yes. No. I definitely agree, and uh, had something good to say about that too. Prove it. <laughs>